Uh, a few years ago in 2018, I went to go see a pastor and a counselor and a friend of mine named Alec Cameron. Uh, I was, well, there are lots of emotions on that feelings wheel, but at this time in 2018, I was only feeling two of them. I was angry and I was sad, which is me being depressed. Like when I'm depressed, those are pretty much the only two emotions that I can feel. And uh, Alec and I, we talked about my depression for a little bit, but then he gave me some homework to do. He said, I'm not going to meet with you until you do this homework. I want you to write out your complaint to God. Uh, I want you to just take a pen and paper and just write out everything that you're mad about. I was like, where do I begin? He's like, just start somewhere. Well, I really wanted to meet with Alec again. So I sat down and I did this homework assignment. And uh, eight, nine pages later, I'd finished out my complaint. I went back to Alec and I presented it to him and we started going over it. Now, some of the stuff that I had written out was stuff that was connected to my past. Some of the stuff was what was presently in the news that was angering me. But then there was something that caught uh, Alec's attention. And he asked me, what's this about Jim Kelly? And as soon as he said Jim's name, I started to cry in the chair. Jim Kelly was a boy and my sister, uh, my sister named Taya. Jim is uh, a boy in her class. He was two years younger than me. We used to play together on the playground. And he really was the sweetest guy. But for reasons I don't fully comprehend, Jim Kelly was mercilessly bullied uh, by kids in his class. And the bullying got so bad that Jim one day went back to his home. He found his daddy's gun and he killed himself. And he was 12 years old. And as I was telling this story to Alex, just raw emotions started to just gush out of me. My body was shaking. Tears were streaming down my face. And they weren't sad tears. They were more like hot, angry tears. I was angry at the bullies that Jim faced. I'm just angry at at bullies in general and angry at the meanness of the world and just angry. And after this wave of emotion had come over me and sort of um, my body was spent, Alec asked me what I was feeling. I said, honestly, I'm feeling a little embarrassed because I I didn't want you to see that. But I'm also a little bit surprised because, like, Jim died 20 years ago. So to have this level of emotion right now is kind of unsettling and surprising to me. What do you make of that? And he said, John, anger is energy. Uh, Instead of processing your anger when Jim died, you buried it. And because anger is this energy, it doesn't just go away. It really needs catharsis. It needs release. And it's coming out now. But until you own your anger, your anger owns you. This is at the heart of what I want to talk to you all about tonight. About you owning your anger so that it doesn't own you. I want to talk to you about connecting with God in your anger which means learning how to articulate it and to analyze it. And then if there's anything left over, how to apply it, how to aim it, sort of filtering it through the cross. Before we dive in, though, let's just make sure we know what exactly anger is. We know it's the slice on this emotion wheel pie, but what is it? How is it different from the other emotions? Well, at its most basic level, anger is protest. It's complaint. It's that voice inside of us crying out, this is not right. This is wrong. No. 
It's what we hear at the beginning of Psalm 58. If you look uh, to your handout again, just follow along there. Right In these initial verses, David is decrying the injustice he sees all around him. Criminals cheating the system and getting away with it. Thugs roaming the streets and terrorizing people, murdering the innocent. Everywhere he turns, lies on top of lies. Incessant spin. Of course, things that we don't know anything about, right? No, this is a world that we're familiar with. In a broken, fallen world such as ours, it makes sense that you and I would get angry. You ought to feel angry in the presence of injustice. You ought to feel anger in the face of racism and homelessness, sexual assault, corruption, and lives being ruined by addiction. If these things don't phase you, your heart isn't working right. To not feel anger in the face of injustice is actually wrong. It's sinful. Which is to say there is such a thing as good anger. God himself gets angry. And the reason God gets angry is because God is love. Now, sometimes I'll hear students say, I don't worship a God of wrath. I choose to worship a God of love. But that's a false dichotomy. If you want to worship a a God of love, you are going to get a God who gets angry when his loved ones are used, abused, threatened, and destroyed. That's how love works. Uh, I know some of you are in a class about Breaking Bad right now. What up, Emily? Um, Maybe you all have seen the show too. Season 2, episode 12. Remember Remember? You know what I'm talking about? All right, maybe not that down. But Jane's father, okay, there's Jane's father walks in her house. I didn't mean to embarrass you anymore. You can be angry at me. (laughs) Jane's father walks into her house and he discovers that she's fallen off the wagon. She's doing drugs again. And he's furious. He's angry. Now you remember? Yeah. Yeah, okay. The reason why Jane's dad gets angry is because he loves his daughter. And he hates, hates, hates what the drugs are doing to her. He hates that Jesse is uh, feeding her drugs. He hates that these drugs are destroying his little girl's life. He hates that if things don't change, it's going to lead to a tragically early death. Jane's father is angry precisely because he cares. Precisely because he loves his girl. He's angry because he's a good dad. And Jesus tells us that we've got a good dad too, right? His father, who's also now our father in heaven. And just like Jane's father, our father gets angry when he sees his children. He sees us hurting and hurting others, including ourselves. If God were not angry over how we are destroying ourselves, if he didn't stand against the deception, the lies, and the sins that destroy, he wouldn't be good, and he certainly wouldn't be loving. In her book, Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert writes, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is, and the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race, which he loves with his whole being. God gets angry because God is love and loving. Anger's protest, 
Anger is love and action, but anger is also energy. You could call it the dynamite of the soul. When we get angry, our body tenses up. We feel hot, um, like temperature-wise, right? We say things like, my blood is boiling. Anger is not unlike hot lava and a volcano. Lava, this energy that needs release. Either it's going to come out slowly and self-controlled like Mount Kilauea in Hawaii, or it's going to come out sideways and explosively like Mount St. Helens, but it is going to come out. It's energetic. Like lava, our anger can burn people. It can hurt. It can destroy. When we're kids, our anger gushes out in the forms of biting and hitting and screaming. But as we mature, we learn there are other ways of expressing this emotion, ways that are not so destructive. You learn, we hope, (laughs) some self-control, right? That we can talk about our anger without doing it. The Bible says that we ought to be slow in our anger, that we need to be self-controlled, to not sin in our anger, but to come to God with that, or to come to God with it. In doing that, right, connecting with God and our anger, that requires honesty. It requires honesty. Honesty is essential to all praying, not just praying our anger, but praying all of our emotions, Because God is always going to meet us where we are at. But in order to connect with him there, we need to know where we're at. And we need to show up there too. Which means we got to let go of false pretenses. we got to stop faking, fibbing. But we need to be honest. We need to be real. We need to come as we are. Being honest with our anger is really uncomfortable sometimes. It's maybe more uncomfortable than talking about our sadness or our shame even. Talking about our anger makes us feel sometimes not right. It can sound a little scary. If we're really honest about what we're really feeling when we're angry, we say things that might catch us off guard, like, oh my gosh, like that's in me? I can't believe I just said that. It can be unsettling. A lot of us think that we're supposed to be nice, especially before God. So at the moment we are to be most honest, we can sometimes pull back and resort to cliches. We're just lying, saying, I'm not that angry, I'm just frustrated, that's all. Or, I'm not angry, I'm just sad. I'm just disappointed. Or, it's no big deal. But friends, God is not asking us to be nice. God's asking us to be honest. And this is why the Psalms are such a gift to us. Um, Because they allow us to pick up that other end of the landline and to listen in on intimate conversations with God. And when we do that, we learn that connecting with God in our anger sounds a lot like Psalm 58, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. God, I want you to break the teeth of the wicked. I want you to, to... to punch them in the mouth, shatter their jaw. I want you to tear out their fangs. I, I want you to wipe those folks from the face of the earth like water vanishing into thirsty ground. I want you to make their weapons useless in their hands. This is what honest anger, like real anger, sounds like. 
It sounds like how long? What we just sang. What, God, what are you waiting for? It just comes to us from Psalm 94. That psalm continues. These people are crushing your people, Lord. They, they're killing the widow and the orphan and the refugee, like the weakest members of society, the ones that you and we are supposed to protect. And not only are these people doing this, they're saying that you don't care, that they don't care, but worse, you don't care. And the psalmist says, I'm tired of it. I'm, I'm fed up with this injustice. I want you to get rid of these fools. I want you to get rid of these evildoers. Wipe them off the face of the earth. What are you waiting for? In some ways, angry at them, but also angry at God. It just seems like he's not doing anything. Have you ever said such a thing? Would you dare to pray this way? If not, what would it take for you to be this angry? What would it take for you to, to pray this way? Would it, would it take somebody murdering a loved one of yours? Or suffering rape? Seeing members of your community being targeted and killed because of the color of their skin? Like, what does it take for you to learn how to pray this way? Honestly. I don't know about you, but I am so glad. That there are words in the Bible that we can pray in the worst moments of our lives. That the, the psalmist, that they don't and we don't, right, have to work this out. Sort of have, somehow work this out before we go to God and have an honest conversation with him. That God wants to connect with us no matter where we are at. And he has given us language that gives us license to say what we really feel and experience. That the Holy Spirit and the putting together of this collection of prayers made sure that prayers like Psalm 58 made their way into the curriculum. That the victims of the gravest injustice and the victims of the unspeakable horror would have words that are adequate for their situation and ours. Because, y'all, God isn't put off by this language. Uh, the people around you, right, might be a little sort of shaken up. They might think, whoa, there. But God doesn't think that. He invites you into honest conversation, even and especially in your anger. What I've learned about prayer, I've learned from pastors like Bradley Barnes, a friend of mine, Alec Cameron, another pastor, and a pastor named Eugene Peterson, who says this in one of his lectures on, on the Psalms. He says, Jesus is so with us. He's given us a school, a textbook for prayer that is so where we are. The important thing in prayer is not propriety, but honesty. We absolutely have to acquire honesty before God. Because God is not fussy about protocols. We don't have to get there in the right kind of clothes and say the right kind of things. But what is required is that we get all of ourselves there. Every part of ourselves. This part of ourselves that is angry and is angry enough to imagine God as the one who slaps people in the cheeks and busts the teeth out of people in a barroom brawl. This was not edited out of the Psalms. The difference between Psalm 58 and much of the praying that we do is simply a matter of honesty. If I'm going to be bringing myself before God so that he can speak his word into me, I've got to let him know who I am. I have to be open with everything that is in me. He says, don't try to be too nice with God. It's his job to make you nice. 
If you try to be nice, all you do is become a Pharisee. Let him make you nice. But in order for him to make you nice, you've got to give him access to the part of you that's not so nice. The cussing parts of your life. The angry parts of your life. Not verbalizing our anger, but stuffing it, hiding it, is like burying nuclear waste. It's like taking this energy and just putting it in the ground. Buried, it's going to contaminate your life. It's going to lead to bitterness and depression and shame, or it's going to start seeping out and coming out sideways. And those who were not even connected with that inciting incident, right, that got you angry in the first place, these other people far off in the future, they're the ones who are going to have to deal with it. And maybe they're the ones who are going to get maimed and injured by it. Think back to my own story about Jim Kelly, right? About what we don't own owns us. Step one in connecting with, with God and our anger is learning how to articulate it. How to give, uh, give it uh, some voice. But step two then is analyzing it. Once we've gotten all the yuck out, we've got to sort through it. We've got to start asking some questions. Allow God to ask some questions of us. When you read through the Psalms, uh, especially the angry ones, what you'll see time and again is that God shows up in these Psalms as a warrior and as a judge. We see both of these things actually in Psalm 58. We see the, the warrior in verses 6 through 9, and we see him show up as it were as a judge in verse 11. It's incredibly comforting uh, to know that when we get angry at the injustices of the world, there is a God on the other end of the line who is upset as we are. Maybe even more so. If you have suffered and have been mistreated, God being upset by your pain and furious with those who've harmed you, that is deeply comforting. But God doesn't just show up as a warrior and judge. He doesn't just validate our anger and say, yeah, that's right, you do you. Right? That's not always what he does. Maybe even rarely. He'll show up as a warrior and judge, but he, he also shows up throughout the scriptures and in the Psalms as a counselor, forcing reflection, giving sage advice. We see this in the book of Jonah, God asking Jonah, hey, do you do well to be angry? Right? Is it right for you to be so angry right now, Jonah? We, we see it in Jesus, right? Slow down, right? Why don't you take that log out of your eye before you start taking the speck out of others? And we hear it in the Psalms too. We, we, we pick this up at the end of Psalm 139, where after this outburst of anger, David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. After you articulate your anger, you need to analyze it. Because while our anger can be good and righteous at times, and truly an extension of what we love, most of the time our anger is unrighteous. And what it reveals is that we love ourselves way too much. I like how Alistair Groves puts it in his book, Untangling Emotions. He says, anger at its best communicates protective love for what God loves. At its best, that's what it does. It communicates protective love for what God loves. At its worst... Anger conveys unadulterated self-interest and issues an ultimatum. Obey my law and my will or suffer my wrath. 
See, the first question that we need to ask ourselves after we've articulated sort of our anger honestly is, why am I so worked up? What's this really about? As I said, right, there are things that should make you mad. But let's be honest. Most of the time, those are, are not the things that are really making you mad. What's making you mad most of the time is long lines at city market. Somebody taking your parking spot at the gut. Your roommate leaving dishes in the sink. Pizza not being delivered fast enough. Your favorite sports team losing a game. Your internet being too slow. A friend forgetting to invite you to a party. Your Somebody bruising your pride, somebody bruising your ego. You hate being embarrassed and shamed and rejected and called out, and I do too. But even when your anger is justifiable, odds are the intensity intensity of your anger isn't. Uh, As Tim Keller puts it, there's nothing wrong with being ticked when somebody slights your reputation, but why are you 10 times or 100 times more angry about that than some horrible violent injustice being done to people in another part of the world? There are certain things that make us incredibly angry when the cause really warrants only a little bit of anger. And then there are other causes for which we ought to be incredibly angry, but we're hardly angry at all. It's just sort of like, well, that sucks for you. We're often not angry at the right things. We're We're often not angry in the right measure. But also... We are often after the wrong goals. In our analysis, we need to ask ourselves, what are we fighting for? This is a different question from what am I angry at? Again, to quote Keller, loving anger always seeks to do a surgical strike on the evil. If you really truly love someone, say your child or your friend, And you see them being an idiot. You want to destroy the idiocy, not the child. You want to destroy the idiocy, idiocy, not your friend. What am I fighting for? Am I fighting to be right? Am I I fighting to, to win an argument? In our fighting, are we willing to destroy our beloved? Or are you going to be loving? Are you going to be fighting for the right things? Are you fighting for the right things? Because this is how God loves us. Every one of us in this room has been hurt. And every one of us in this room is also hurtful. We are hurting and we are hurting. And the ways we hurt God, each other, and this world, it adds up. It adds up to an incalculable debt. Our debt becomes so big and our crimes so many that God has every right to kick us out of his house and say, I never want to see you again. Like, you're not welcome here. No trespassing. That's just. We don't deserve eternal life. We really do deserve the opposite instead, which would be like eternal death. That would be fair. That would be just. But I want you all to know what God does with his anger. God goes after you, but not in the ways that you might think. He goes after you with the goal of saving you and not destroying you. Our sins incur the total slow-burning and righteous wrath of God. But instead of punishing us, God climbs onto a cross and he takes the punishment that our sins deserve in our place. He really does hate injustice and evil. 
Uh, he really hates sin. Look at Psalm 58 again, or Psalm 94. And he punishes it. He punishes it to the max. But even though he hates evil and he hates injustice, he loves you and me more. And this is why, in his genius, he has done something to destroy sin and save the sinner. To destroy the idiocy in the child while saving the son and the daughter and restoring the relationship. God uses his anger to save. He uses his anger to restore. It is restrained in a way that holds out hope and it, and it leads uh, or looks forward to uh, future repentance. At least holds out that possibility. The cross is sort of this intersection. You can think of it as like God's justice and his love sort of coming together. His angry uh, justice and his love meeting and, and taking us to Jesus. Showing us like what it really looks like to be angry and loving. Um, after our articulating our anger, we need to ask these questions. Chief amongst them, is our anger constructively serving God's merciful and redemptive purposes? Or is it destructively serving our own selfish agenda? But let's say you've done these steps. You've articulated, you've analyzed, you've panned your anger, you've run it through this filter of the cross, and there's still some nuggets left over. Anger that is really pure and is really justified. What do you do with those? Well, as we wrap up, I'll just say I think you work with it. At that point, I think you work with your anger in the same way that Martin Luther King Jr. worked with his. Because anger really is this energy. It's not bad per se. It is energy. It's adrenaline that can empower you to work for justice against great odds and against great opposition. I think if you've articulated your anger honestly and you've analyzed it, you've really filtered it, you've run it sort of through this cross and there's still things that are left over, I think you work with it like the folks at International Justice Mission work with theirs. Right? Their anger that moves them into the slums and into brothels to free modern day slaves and, and sex workers been kidnapped and forced into sex slavery. You need anger to go into those dark places. You need anger to fight that kind of injustice and oppression. It can be a gift of God for you, right? After, again, as, as you've articulated and you've analyzed and you've filtered through it. But as these examples show, you're going to work out your anger like God does in a way that destroys evil while leaving room for evildoers to repent and to be saved. Martin Luther King Jr. had every right in some ways to want to see a bunch of white-skinned folks wiped out who were oppressing them. But in his love, his anger drove him to like lead the civil rights, but in his love, he's like, I want to see us reconciled. I want to see us restored. I want to see a just society. I want to see a civil society where it's not just black-skinned folks and white-skinned folks, but us together. That's what love and action looks like. And, he, and it was driven by anger, by a righteous anger. They didn't seek to destroy enemies, but to be reconciled with enemies. We often go, we often want to go straight to the step, don't we? It's just like, can't I just get my anger out right in the right way, like right away. If you're like me, that's true. 
But I think in truth, we've got to go through these messy and uncomfortable steps of articulating it first and analyzing it. You can't get to C without going through A and B first. Fear and anger are some of the most dominant emotions in a broken, fallen world. And if you are going to put down roots, if you're going to live the good life, you're going to have to learn how to connect with God when you're angry and afraid. The Psalms are here to help you. And we in RUF are too. Learning how to pray is not something that you learn how to do in isolation. It's something that is taught. It's something that is caught. And we learn it as we do it with others. The kind of praying that I'm talking about is the kind of praying that I hope that you experience in this kind of community. We're asking you, how are you really doing? And we're creating spaces for you to really be honest, for you to show up, for you to come as you are and encounter a God who loves you enough to meet you where you are at, but also loves you enough not to leave you there. He says, come on, let's go someplace else. Let's go someplace good. That's what I hope that you experience, and that's what I hope in some ways you pick up here uh, tonight. Let's pray.